Episode 31 of The Passive Hang. It's Fayon here. Remember, check out the website, thepassivehang.com, where I've got the podcasts, I'm sharing videos, and now I'm writing informational guides for all you movement enthusiasts. Check it out now on thepassivehang.com. All right, guys, thanks uh, for joining in. It's Fayon here, and I am really pleased to welcome back Daniel Lucini back to the podcast. This is episode 31, and it's a bit of a special one because, yeah, he's back on for a second time, and I really wanted to get in touch with him and ask him about what he's doing because he's been preparing for a very special event, which I'll, I'll let him explain through for a, a little while. But, um, yeah, welcome back to the show, Daniel. Thanks so much, man. Really happy to be back. And uh, ironically, 31st episode, I was born on the 31st, so uh, I think it's uh, meant to be. <laughs> the stars are aligning, you know, that's why <laughs> <laughs> That's why we made it happen. It wasn't us making it happen, it just, it just happened. <laughs> Universe rules all, man. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you're the, um, I guess, founder of Merakai Performance. Last time you were on, you took us through a little bit of the journey as well of, um, I guess, the, the reasoning behind why you, uh, you, you started that, which I urge everyone to, if they haven't listened already, you know, take, take a listen back to that previous episode. It was a really, really great one in the uh, early books. Um, but I actually, before this talk, was like, okay, Merakai, I need to familiarize myself again with the meaning of this word. So I Googled it and this is what it's told me. It goes, Marikai, when you leave a piece of yourself in your work, it's like when you love something so much, you put something of yourself into it. And I think, Daniel, that's just uh, every time I read a post of yours, that's what I feel, you know, in terms of what you are doing, creating. Um, and it's not just, you know, the creation of the posts, but I also feel like this uh, piece of life adventure that you're going on and actually doing in real life, you know, not just creating a post and a piece of writing to put up there as well. So, uh, yeah, man, uh, I, I just want to say I always get a lot of inspiration and appreciation from the stuff that you share. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. And it's, uh, I actually had this conversation with someone the other day. I chose the name uh, Merakai, you know, a number of years ago, and I, I kind of, obviously, I did the same thing. I Googled, what does it mean? I was like, okay, that's, that's a cool meaning. Like, I want to use this word. It's going to make mm -hmm. me sound or, you know, with it. But in the same way that we didn't plan this number matching up, I, I didn't really realize how much that that was eventually going to mean to me. And I think it's, it describes the way I try to live my life pretty mm -hmm. accurately. Um, looking at all the things I've going at the moment, I, I truly do think that, you know, we need to put part of ourselves into everything we're doing because we are the product of all those things combined. And that is who we are. And um, the more we can dive into something wholeheartedly, whether it's writing an Instagram post or doing a specific training or talking to whoever you're talking to, we should be fully there and giving everything we have and everything we're willing to give in that moment. And you get a lot more out of things and you progress in a way that feels good and feels right. Mm, yeah, it kind of, uh, it's almost like this concept of living vibrantly, I think, you know, to, to jump into something to make the most of it. And I think that's what you're doing here. Um, so you're preparing for a 24 hour run, which I think is completely bananas. <laughs> so the first question I have to say is why? Mm, the, uh, 
famous question that seems to come up and I, I haven't quite articulated the right answer yet, but I'll, I'll give it my best go. So I completed a hundred kilometer back in April and I knew pretty much going, going into that run, uh, I had planned to kind of leave it there. I thought that was it. That was enough. hundred kilometers is, you know, pretty significant. Most people probably won't do that. I can get into something else. But pretty much the moment I finished that run, I knew I'd left way too much undiscovered. Because even in that run, there was so much gained, but I kind of, I was smiling as I crossed the finish line. I had more in the legs. I could have done more. And I really hate that feeling <laughs> of just knowing I haven't given everything I could have. And because of that, I haven't got everything out of the project. So I sort of looked for the next big thing. And the, the classic one would be the miler, so the 100 mile run, 160 kilometers. And just that little little voice inside my head that said, is, you know, is that it? You're just going to do the thing that everyone else would do next? <laughs> so somewhere in, in my brain, it ticked over. And pretty much, you know, within a couple of weeks after the run, as soon as I was able to start running again, I decided that 24 hours was going to be the next uh, obstacle or the next challenge. And I dove straight into it. So I finished the 15-month prep into the 100K and I've gone straight into an eight-month prep now for this 24-hour run. And, uh, you know, along the way, I realized that in order to do this, I'm going to have to sacrifice a lot. And that included time, mm. time with others, time for my business, time for all these other things and energy, of course, because we only have so much that we can, you know, distribute across that balance. So I wanted to at least to make it something a little bit bigger than me, just trying to, you know, dive into my own mind and see how I cope with adversity. So I decided to turn into a fundraiser as well. And that's gone, that's become a big driving force, but also a huge stress. And it's added so much more, I guess, difficulty to the prep. Mm. And I enjoy that. I like, uh, I've started to enjoy it over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> it's seeming like you're searching for almost like the biggest challenge or the biggest stressor, the biggest rock to climb for you to almost like be toppled by it. And then because of that, you you may be feeling a little bit more satisfied is that is, is that kind of that's kind of like the metaphor of the feeling that i'm getting in my head yeah so i guess to dive straight into my own psychoanalysis of myself i have an incredible fear of failure and i think we all do to a certain degree um but mine seems to have crippled me a number of times in life when i start getting into a position where i can kind of push forward or move away I choose to move away because there's too much risk. If I go forward, I'll you know, lose that sense of accomplishment that I might've gained in the two years getting there. And I found that I was often choosing challenges for myself, again, hundred K or whatever it is and taking them on and completing them and being successful, not failing. But I realized that's because I was always going into these things with a little sense of confidence. Like I knew I could run a hundred kilometers before I ran a hundred kilometers. Mm -hmm. But when I, when I thought about this one, I was like, if I truly want to break free of this and I want to progress in all areas of my life, I need to choose something that goes beyond what I even fathom possible. And the 24-hour run was the one that stood out. I hate running for time to start with, so that was the first thing. And uh, I, I still, to this point, don't know if I can run 24 hours, especially because I've set quite an outlandish goal with 200 kilometers as the actual, uh, I guess, finish distance. So it was a matter of exposing myself to the thing I feared the most, which was 
just that failure and, and not doing something. And I had to truly find a challenge that scared me, that kept me up at night because everything else, and I think this is really common, people will often choose challenges and take risks, but they're calculated and there isn't that true fear there. And I think exposing ourselves to that opens up huge avenues of discovery and I'm just an adventurer. But. Yeah, this is beautiful because I wanted to ask you about sort of the, the, the current realizations in the process that you've gone through for preparation for this event. And I guess, you know, the, probably the real realizations will happen during the event, right? Which, which, which hasn't happened as yet, but um, I think that was wrapped up sort of in a, in a beautiful way because you know, it is normally when we push ourselves to the edges of, of these limits, right, that we find new parts of ourselves that maybe have, haven't been discovered, right? So, you know, have you ever thought right now, you know, you're young, you're in this age of expansion where all your physical abilities are increasing, maybe your cognitive abilities as well feel like they're expanding, but at some point, you know, it's natural that it probably will start to, to decline. Have you ever thought about those moments and what you'll do and how your orientation may have to adapt? Man, I feel like that's already happening sometimes. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it has been a big thing because I guess I invest so much time into my, I guess, physicality and, and what it represents to me. But I think looking forward, it doesn't really change too much. Uh, sure, the, the possibilities may change of what we can physically represent, but I think like we discussed last time, the thing isn't the thing. It's what we discover within that. Mm -hmm. And I think there will always be something to discover and you always will have a perceived limit and then you'll have you know, the next level of limit and then you'll have your true limit. And we probably never find that last one and it's probably a good thing because there's probably some bad stuff can happen there. But if I can at least get past that first perceived limit, the one that I've created for myself with my own perception, I think we always have access to that. And there's no reason why that ever needs to stop. Sure, I may need to reorientate exactly how I go about that. And I'll probably have to smarten up with some of the ways that I, I do things. But the purpose will always be the same. It will be to find the path that I'm on and find the path that feels right, and then take a step off it, and just go a little bit further, or a little bit to the right, and see what comes out of that. So I wanted to dive in a little bit to the actual practicalities of the physical preparation now, um, and for all those listening, you know, Daniel also involves himself with a lot of other sort of uh, skill development or movement type training as well, so you're not just, you know, you're not just an endurance marathon runner or not even marathon i guess i don't know what you term yourself after you <laughs> go past 100 k's but you know runner uh, so in terms of your physical training at the moment like what what does that actually look like yeah so it is pretty full on um i guess i'll just run through kind of everything i'm doing and then mm -hmm. talk about how they fit in uh, with each other so obviously running is the dominant uh practice I'm running somewhere between 80 and 130 kilometers a week for the past sort of six months or so, which, you know, is seven to 12 hours per week. Um, I then practice handstands seven days a week for, you know, 60 to 90 minutes. That's sort of a big joy of mine still. 
I'm in the gym two to three times a week. That's varied throughout the prep, just sort of managing workload. But yeah, mm. still still focusing on strength. That's something that's incredibly important for the run. I still play with the gymnastics rings, although uh, the energy devoted to that is severely depleted. It's more so just for some sort of maintenance now and just for a little bit of upper body pump, which feels nice yeah. too. And uh, there's a lot of sort of, I guess, other little practices around there. I do a lot of uh, sauna work, a lot of stair climbing in hoodies and beanies and stuff like that to acclimatize and, and to just test my mental uh, mental limits. I think the mental training is probably the biggest uh, obstacle and the biggest thing that's overlooked. So I try to expose myself to as many, I guess, minimal fatigue type challenging activities that I can in a day as well. Uh, but I'd say on average at the moment, it's somewhere between five to seven hours of training a day, um, which is, you know, obviously a, a little bit, a little bit uh, excessive, but in order to prepare for a 24 hour run, I need to be able to back up time and time again. So I space those out throughout the day so that it kind of feels like I'm training all day, um, which isn't a half bad thing. But yeah, so the running is obviously the most specific thing I do. It's the biggest focus. It takes energy priority. I will always make sure that I get that done before anything else, unless I'm deliberately trying to run with fatigued legs, then I may go for a cycle or uh, do some gym work before, again, just to, to replicate what it's going to feel like at you know the 15-hour mark or the 16-hour mark as best I can. The handstands are something that I started 18 months ago, and they've just become a huge passion of mine. I absolutely love them. Mm. Um, I, I want to do them all the time, and I would do it more if, uh, if I had more time in the day, but I think it's been really important for me to keep handstands and keep the rings and to keep even just some some I guess energy wasting gym work where I'm just focusing on getting a pump because it it gives me some joy and because training's always been a huge joy thing for me. But because of the prep and the pressure that I've placed upon myself, the activity of running has become a chore. It's become something that I not necessarily dread doing, although some days that is the case. It's but it's lost that sense of joy and freedom at once had. So I think if I took away everything else to perhaps conserve energy for the running, which might be beneficial, I would lose the thing that's most important to me about the training. And that is just purely the joy and discovery that's within it. This is really interesting. So it's sounding like, you know, there's parts of your training, which the emotional response is quite different, right? Like you've just described this run as as the chore right which it sounds almost kind of unbelievable because you're still making yourself do the thing right <laughs> and i think a lot of us pick and choose a lot of our training based on this innate feeling of joy right like we're like okay i want to try this practice and devote myself to this practice because there's somewhere within it there's this joy that comes out and really nourishes me but your nourishment I'm almost feeling from this run is coming from like this different source, almost like this sense of it's like searching for that limit of potential and what that's going to reveal. And that overcomes your desire for joy. Yeah. I think you, you pretty much summed it up perfectly. Then it's, it's when you, I think specifically when you have something you enjoy and all of a sudden it stops becoming, it stops having that same effect. You know, you might be thinking that you're over it or you're bored of it. But I think that that is the moment where you need to push even more into it because something is there. There's some sort of wall, there's some sort of block that is hiding something from you. And there is definitely a time uh, to push into that, that place you don't want to necessarily be. 
to, to walk right up to the water's edge, to see the waves crashing in, to take off the shoes that got you there. That's the shoes that were full of joy, the shoes that were full of freedom. Throw them behind you and walk barefoot into the ocean and, and see what you find there. And I think if, if we give ourselves that opportunity, we'll discover something even more valuable than that, that instantaneous joy or that dopamine release that we might get. We're going to find something invaluable. And that's, that's the part of ourselves that we weren't perhaps in communication with or we didn't really understand properly. And now we have the opportunity to do that simply by leaning into that, that discomfort or that uncertainty or, or that scary challenge. And how have you found your strengths and skill development, you know, in the last eight months whilst you have also had to scale up all this running? Yeah. So that's been interesting. I guess I've still made progress in other elements. Um, my handstands have still improved. I've unlocked a couple of different moves in that time. Look, I, I don't know how much faster it would have been if I wasn't spending so much energy on running, of course, but I've still been able to make progress and at a fairly steady rate and a rate that I'm satisfied with. Uh, strength has taken somewhat of a hit, but also in other ways it hasn't. My single leg work is probably as strong as it's ever been, despite being probably 10 kilos lighter than I was when I was at my you know, quote unquote strongest. So I think the when managing things properly, in certain phases, it feels like it goes a lot further down, but that's just due to my commitment to the training and how hard I'm pushing while I'm there. Sometimes, again, that fear starts to arise. If I train hard today, I'm not gonna be able to do my run tomorrow. Well, why don't I just try training hard today, tomorrow, and see if I can do my run tomorrow? And then I can, and well, now I know I can train hard again. So I've been able to build the strength back up and still split squatting, you know, 90 kilos, single leg RDLs, 120 kilos, which is not sort of far off my absolute best, I guess. But yeah, it's of course hard to measure what would have happened if I wasn't doing all of this. But I still think that progress has been made and clearly is possible to be made despite you know, putting your energy into one place. It's just figuring out how we can balance that within a day and within a week and within a month and, you know, over a long term as well. It's been essentially a two-year prep. Um, yeah, so what does yeah. that sort of schedule look like for you? Are, you? are you quite intuitive or is it very structured so that you know, okay, these activities, this is the effect that I want? Uh, yeah, so I, right now, I'm in the most sort of intuitive phase that I've been. Um, but over time, that sort of gradually tapered into that intuitive phase. Uh, it was originally quite structured, um, you know, devoting certain months to qualities within the gym, whether that was like eccentric strength or isometric strength, and then trying to reflect that in the running protocols. Uh, for example, during the eccentric phase, it was more long, slow runs. And then once I got into the isometrics and the concentric, it was more working on speed and things like that to, to replicate the forces that I'm trying to produce in the gym. Uh, but at this point now where, you know, starting probably four weeks ago, number one priority did become fatigue management and uh, holding up to the last bit of strength. So I've been really just picking and choosing. On a day that I felt good, I would get as much out of the gym as I possibly could or as much out of the run as I could. Um, and then I would sort of uh, just structure the rest of the week around that. Still having like volume targets more so to, to uh, ensure that, you know, recovery tendons and joints are okay, but the intensity was varied depending on how I was feeling and you just kind of have to be reciprocal with that. And of course that takes experience, which I have a, a fair bit of now. Um, and just a, an honest conversation with myself pretty often about how I was feeling and a lot of sitting and looking at shoes 
uh, waiting to prepare exactly how I'm going to play in that day. But yeah, so a bit of both. So, you know, you, you've talked a bit about like your strong journaling practice, which I guess is like the, this observational practice as well. And, you know, when you try and manage fatigue and these signs within your body, I guess you have to be very aware of what is actually happening. Right. So after certain sessions, whether it be running or strengths, what's your process in terms of what you then do to note down and notice and then use that information for feedback? Yeah, so uh, I do have yeah quite a quite a detailed journaling process. I, I have my one that I do when I first wake up, and that's kind of an assessment on how I'm feeling on the day. I try to be as detailed as I can. Um, if I just write, I feel tired. You can kind of do that for six days in a row, and then you forget what it feels like to not be tired. Um, also, counting the days of fatigue. I guess when you're training for something so immense, you're going to be fatigued and you're going to be tired. So it's important to acknowledge, I guess, how long that's carrying on for. There's nothing wrong with being tired for a day or two, but if it starts carrying for a while. So being quite detailed in that process has been really important for me. Mm-hmm. And then throughout each training session, I, I will finish an exercise or a superset. And uh, before moving on to the next one, I always try to, again, take as many detailed notes as I can. Uh, what was breaking down? Was it my body? Was it my mind? Was it my focus? And, you know, if I see focus, focus, focus on every single exercise, then I know I've probably done too much and I can't quite you know, keep it together mentally. And that can be quite dangerous, uh, especially when you're, you are working with, you know, closer to maximal loads, you, you need to be focused. Otherwise that's where stuff can go wrong. And again, the priority is running. So if I'm injuring myself in the gym, then that's, that's going to be a, a poor reflection on how much I care about that running. And yeah, that's pretty much done after every session. I have a training journal that, you know, gets used up pretty quick. It's probably six to seven pages per day, just reflecting upon the training um, and what the training was as well. Mm-hmm. And it almost sounds like, you know, there's these two sides, like physiological load and neurological load, right? So mm-hmm. when you recognize, you know, one or the other, maybe if you can take us through both, like what do you, what's your recovery process like to start, you know, turning that ship around so that you can recover for, for whatever you need to do next? Yeah. So, you know, we, first of all, you need to have some sort of way of measuring that. Or, or knowing that. And there's simple tools we can use, heart rate, uh, heart rate variability, things like that. They're good measures. They're, they have their flaws, sure, but they're overall good measures for what we have access to. So keeping on top of that stuff is really important as the first step because you, if you don't, again, uh, you're going to be subjectively fatigued a lot of the time because I might do, you know, six runs in a week and not necessarily be that fatigued, really, but the mundane nature of it is making me dread going to do it. And it's going to show up as fatigue because really it's just my mental focus or my, my ability to keep uh, mind on the task is what's actually exhausted. It's not my body. It's not really even my nervous system. It's just how much crap am I willing to put up with? So being really aware of what's happening there. Uh, I, ha- I do a balance test every single morning. I do things like that, which just give me a measure. So once I have identified, I guess, some sort of fatigue, if it's physiological fatigue, I'm usually not doing too much about it. I'm going to keep sort of doing what I have to do. Um, I use most of my training is RPE-based, so that will sort of auto-regulate that, make sure nothing's crazy. I might tone down the pace of my running a little bit. But one thing that I have become a lot better with, especially in this prep compared to the 100 kilometer, is knowing when to take a day off. Um, I've often pushed myself into, into overuse injuries, had many stress fractures in 
all the parts of my lower body that I didn't even know the names of before. And yeah, so learning when to take a day off and knowing that you can fight again tomorrow and you can do more tomorrow and have a better day if you just leave this one. But then of course you've got the basics as well. Priorities like sleep have been huge. I, I, I rarely, rarely don't get my eight hours. I make sure that the quality is as good as possible. I'm in bed at the same time every day. I'm up at the same time every day. Nutrition has been uh, fiddled with quite a lot until I found a point where it's been great. I might eat a little bit more if I'm feeling fatigued. I make sure my water's good. It's all the basics. I haven't found the magic cure yet. I haven't found the magic recovery tool, but it is just allowing myself as much rest in a day as I can as well to make sure that I don't get there. Uh, I'm someone who has a constant urge to want to do more, more work, more training, whatever it is, but I spent a lot of time lying on my carpet looking at the ceiling over the last few months, and it's just that ability to downregulate and come back down uh, has been really helpful. And, uh, that sort of comes back to the idea of you know how we balance our energy, and when we move into something like this, which is such a big, you know, again, big energy demand, you need to become aware of the fact that other things will suffer. And it'll only cause suffering if you have an expectation that it won't suffer. So creating realistic expectations around the other elements of my life, which is, you know, business, which is social life, which is time with my fiance, which is, you know, everything else that I, I want to do in a day has to be put on the back burner a little bit. Otherwise, I will just cook through myself, have nothing left to give and fail at everything I'm trying, which is, of course, not the objective. I like this. This is, um, you know, we spoke a little bit before we chatted about the, uh, this concept of resource management, right? And I think that's, mm -hmm. it happens on both sides, you know, both the inputs and outputs. And if one output is really, really large, then you have to minimize these other outputs that are even non-training, right? Because it all feeds mm -hmm. into the same system. So, yeah, you mentioned a little bit about some of these recovery protocols. I'm interested to dig into them a little bit more, you know, uh, with work of the breath and down regulation, even nutrition. Yeah, would you mind maybe like taking us through with a bit more detail how or what you've found that you've had to adjust and then what you found particularly for your case to be effective to help you keep on going? Yeah, just, just before that, just one more quick thing on, I guess, that resource management. I, uh, I, I got engaged last month and <laughs> I subsequently felt the most fatigue in my training that I've ever felt in my life. So that is the clearest example that it isn't just what you're doing in training that matters. It's everything else that's going on in your life because mm -hmm. something like that, which was obviously very exciting, but very energy demanding, absolutely, like it almost broke me <laughs> from the ability to do this run. I had a two week period there where I didn't know if I was even going to be able to come back from that, but uh, we'll move on to the, on to the next question there. So yeah, uh, let's talk, let's start with, with sleep. Uh, sleep is number one. I guess you can read millions of resources, whatever you want, just Google it. You'll find everything. It's, it's, it's no mystery to how important sleep is yet. I think we don't do enough to make it perfect or, you know, in the quest of perfect. And one thing that I've had to prioritize is the times that I go to bed because with my training, it demands, it demands a lot of time and I still need to work. I still need to talk to friends. I still need to do other things. So my training has, has to happen before. I'm up at 3.30 every day and 
because of that, I've had to put sleep first when it comes to the evening. I don't stay up and watch Netflix. I don't get to go out as often as I would like. I still take time to do that and I just balance everything as best I can. But within that, we need to prioritize it. So it's, it's doing all the little things right around sleep. It's, it's not just going to bed at the same time. It's not just uh, waking up at the same time. It's are you turning your screens off beforehand? Are you taking the time to downregulate and actually calm your nervous system down? If you go straight from doing work and try to jump into bed, it's not going to be the best quality sleep. Are you getting early morning sunlight and sunset sunlight to make sure that your circadian rhythm is in check? Uh, things like zinc, magnesium, like a ZMA supplement have been fantastic as well. I found that I, I get a lot more deep sleep because of that. And it's, that is your number one priority. It needs to come before everything else in my opinion. Of course, I'm not a sleep scientist, but uh, the research I think supports that pretty well. And then the next one is, yeah, what we're putting into our body. Obviously, you know, training uh, a lot and trying to do a lot, it burns a lot of energy. So uh, I predominantly, I guess before I got into the real meaty end of this prep, <laughs> pun intended, um, I was pretty high fat, pretty high car uh, protein and just sort of moderate carb that would get dictated by the day. I was doing a lot of fasting and things like that, which were designed to improve my general health. However, as the training got more and more demanding, I realized that the fasting was simply an extra stressor. It wasn't really doing me any benefit anymore. Sure, it has a lot of positives, and we're always very quick to look at the positives of something, and not saying that it doesn't have it, but we need to look at the contraindications. And the more I looked into them and the more I communicated with smarter people than I about it, I realized that it was probably more of a stress. So. I started balancing out my diet throughout the day a little bit more. I started introducing a lot more carbs and I sort of found a sweet spot, which, you know, not saying that eating more carbs is good for endurance sport. You'll find research that says it's not, but for me it has been. And that comes back to my journaling practice as well, which has been really important around food too. Uh, keeping detailed records of what days feel good. What did I eat that day? Sure, it's only a correlation, but the more uh, correlations that you start to see, you can start to get a, a reasonably clear picture uh, my food intake is pretty high. I'm probably on somewhere between four and a half to five and a half thousand calories a day, again, depending on the day. Uh, I'll eat more on big days, eat less on small days because weight management is still important. Um, again, I've had to lose 10 kilos over the last year because that's a lot of load you've got to carry around for a bunch mm -hmm. of single leg jumps. <laughs> and yeah, so I think they're the two first big rocks. Mm -hmm. And after that, then comes the other practice. So breath work has been another really big one. Uh, I have a few go-tos that I uh, have and you know, some box breathing, some 666 breathing, uh, some 478 breathing. And, and they're basically, again, there's a whole bunch of different breathing techniques that will achieve similar results. You've got to find the ones that feel right with you and, and work with that. And uh, I find that giving myself time to, especially the down regulations, I'm a pretty up person usually, so I don't need too much help getting energy. But using a lot of down-regulating breathing has been really important in between training sessions, not just to, I guess, kickstart the recovery process, but to allow me to function in the rest of my day. If I go from doing a two-hour run to a two-hour gym session to a two-hour cycle, I'm either going to be completely exhausted or completely wired on adrenaline. I get pretty hyped when I have big days. It feels good. I, I tap into that sort of savage mindset of mine. And I need to be able to, I guess, level that out to, again, minimize the residual fatigue but also to continue on with the rest of my day. Um, what else have I been using? Saunas. Saunas have been a pretty big part. Um, they, they have a, a range of benefits, but for me, it's been one 
the the mental uh, I guess clarity that I get from it, the the chance to sit with myself, and it's just the time to, if anything else, it's the time to sit quietly and and uh, relax into the moment that you're in, and and just go through things. And it's you know it's 40 minutes in a hot room or 60 minutes in a hot room. You have a lot of time to process things. So I found that's been really useful. Meditation, journaling, all these different tools that are able to I guess bring me back into my body, bring me back into myself. Uh, again, uh, talking about this run, it, it has really activated a lot of fears of mine and that has increased my level of anxiety. And if I try to walk around with that anxiety, that's going to carry into everything else I'm doing. So finding as many ways as I can to manage that, sit with that and to learn about that has allowed me to manage it better and uh, subsequently, you know, feel reasonably good each day as far as managing the figure. Mm. I think you, you know, you managed, uh, or you've spoke about a lot of tools, which is, you know, just very common, almost knowledge, right. To, to people. But what I really like about your practice is this, uh, feedback and reflection so that you recognize these signs and you know, when to adapt and you're like, okay, like some, like maybe like, let's say the fasting, right? Like you're willing to let go of that and just say, you know, right now, maybe that's not what I need. And I need to do something else and now my body and or whatever I'm experiencing is telling me that this is the right choice and I think that's a bit a bit of a tricky art sometimes as well um, you know within ourselves because sometimes you know sensations come up they can be a bit hard to read or maybe they're a little bit delayed you know even fatigue right like after a while you can just feel like that becomes the new normal and then you forget about how how good it feels to, to feel fresh right so you know, with the, do you have any particular like way of questioning yourself when you, when you write or when you, when you think, which then helps breed more of the truth rather than maybe, yeah, maybe uh, leading you to go be, to ignore the signs? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, it is something that has become really important and the easiest way that I could describe it is whatever the thing I'm, I'm thinking or whatever uh, I think I feel or whatever question I'm trying to ask myself, I always just go to the opposite. <clears throat> if I say I feel really tired today or I don't want to do this run today, I, instead of asking why don't I want to do this run today, it's saying do I want to do it? And I start asking the opposite question. And again, in the same way that we can look at fasting and be like, this is good for me because it does all of this. It was like, how is it bad for me? So trying to find the opposite question to the one that suits the answer I already have. If my, if my bias is that something is good, I'm only going to ask the questions that are going to lead to that. It's going to be how else is fasting good for me or is fasting good for my immune system or is it good for this or whatever it is. But instead I'm going to say, why isn't it good? Or why would this not work today? Or what would happen if, I thought about it this way instead. You might not discover anything different. It might lead back to exactly where you were. And that's probably a, a sign that you're on the right, right track. Uh, but you might realize something else. So if, I, if I'm sitting there in the morning and I'm looking down at my journal and I, can, you know, I, I don't want to go for that run, I think my legs are fatigued, it's going to be a little bit extra to get out of bed. It's like, okay, well, this is how I'm feeling right now. But what would I be doing differently if I felt good? probably nothing. How much different would I feel? Why? Well, I, I don't know. Maybe this is, this is actually, I actually do feel good. And then you take off for the run and all of a sudden you feel great that day. It's, you know, we have this idea that we should feel a certain way or we have 
you know, you wake up with an expectation. If I had a massive training day today, which I had, my expectation is that I'm going to be pretty tired and fatigued when I wake up tomorrow morning. And I'm robbing myself of the opportunity to actually experience how I feel the next morning. So uh, it is it is an intricate practice and there's a lot of, uh, I guess, subtlety to it. And, and it takes time to, to become aware of those things. But the more and more opportunity you give yourself to to give ourselves to sit within that space, you start to understand where your own, I guess, lies are, are fitting into the story that you're creating. And we can, I guess, alter that by just, yeah, exploring the other side and trying to have that honest conversation. Asking the same question in multiple ways, you're gonna, you're gonna find a more accurate truth. Yeah, this is like intelligent interrogation almost of what's happening within your mind. Uh, I really love this, like almost looking for disconfirmation or as a way to just go, okay, like what is actually happening here? And I think what you're almost coming to is uh, I've been thinking about this a lot, uh, which is like almost this effective narrative as being an er energy generator or a, a taker as well. Um, you know, energy is such a funny one. As you say, sometimes you wake up and you're just like, you feel cooked, but then after when you start going or maybe someone says something and then suddenly you're like, Ooh, you know, I've got, uh, I'm ready to go. And it can just turn around just like that. It's really, really strange. Um, and I guess where this is leading uh, towards is uh, you mentioned a little bit before, but this role of like self-talk, self-narrative, and especially in an endurance event, you know, there's nowhere to hide because you're sort of getting into this rhythm. I've been on long runs before you sometimes are zoned out, but a lot of the time you're also just questioning yourself or talking to yourself as well. So what's been your experience currently when you're doing it over and over again? And what do you say, or what, what, what's been happening within your mind during these runs? Oh yeah. <laughs> the old uh, conversation on the run, it's, it's, it's always an interesting one, and uh, I definitely don't like that person sometimes. It could be pretty mean, but it's, uh, yeah, like, I guess, just quick context, I've come from a powerlifting background where it has many, many challenges, but moving into ultra-endurance, that was the biggest one. You have so much time to be in your own head. You can't zone it out. You can't, you can't listen to a heavy song and, and get a slap on the back to just forget about everything and go into rage because what's that going to last for 500 meters? You have another 99 kilometers to go. It doesn't work. So you need to be willing to sit with that self-talk. And I guess, you know, it goes through different phases. I'll have, you know, a run, I'll be a kilometer and a half in and I'm already telling myself that I'm never going to finish this run. It's taking forever. I can't believe it's only been a kilometer and a half. Like it gets... Very negative, very quick, I find. I guess especially deeper into this prep as it's become more and more challenging. But the focus has been, you know, it's, it's multifactorial. Within a three-hour run, I'll go through a bunch of different phases. So there will be uh, some negative self-talk, which is usually crushed by good. That's what you're here for. That seems to be a really popular one in my mind that I'll rely on. There's a lot of visualization that happens. Um, during my runs, I will switch, I guess, depending on the type of run, if it's a faster run or a harder run for that day, I generally try to focus on positive visualization on what it's going to feel like when I finish the run, on what it's going to feel like when I, I get to the big event itself and finish that. I sometimes even give myself a little cheer because I'm actually imagining I'm crossing the finishing line or whatever it is. 
And on the shorter runs, I will then dive into some, uh, I guess, uh, negative visualization-ish type stuff that might not be the right word for it, but uh, kind of going through, you know, what could go wrong on this? Like, what what else could happen? What if I fell over on the next on the next curve? What will I do? How will I respond? And I spend a lot and a lot of time, you know, a majority of the time probably going over different scenarios in my head that may occur, and you know, very unlikely, very likely won't occur. Fantastically, because some of them are pretty pretty gruesome, but. Uh, I want to be as prepared as I can for those. And then I guess the third phase is the tapping into that sort of primal savage instinct that I, I've, uh, I guess, fallen in love with and really like about myself, the fact that I can do that. And that's just being hungry. That's just being looking for the willing, the wanting to stop, looking for that heavy feeling in my legs and then just keep going. I guess a lot of the time where we want to quit something, it's not because, well, we think it's because we can't handle the discomfort or it's because we can't handle the pain or whatever it is we're going through. But in that moment of thinking that you just went through another moment of it, it's actually the fear of the next moment that's holding us back, that's making us wanting to quit. But if you never give yourself a chance to get there, then how are you going to know? And in order to keep myself going and keep myself hungry, that's what I, I, I guess I, I look for. I look for that opportunity to find the wanting to stop and then not stopping. It's a simple process, but it keeps me going. And that can last a stride after stride after stride. And then I guess the last sort of thing that is usually going through my head is a real attentive uh, mindfulness on the actual process, trying to be as centered on sensation as I possibly can. And, uh, those days are great. <laughs> they go really smoothly, but they're a little bit, uh, I guess, harder to maintain on the tougher days. There's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of voices coming in, but it's, it's just being able to observe them and not let them control your next move, not re reacting to it instantaneously. With, oh yeah, I'll stop here and have a 10 minute break. It's just being able to observe them, seeing what happens and continuing on from there. When do you sort of, observe and then notice the voices or what your body's saying and then actually go okay like i do need to stop i do need a break um while i'm running I, that hasn't happened yet <laughs> uh, i I've, i have never not completed a run that i set out to do sometimes i drop the pace if you know if some of those like physiological signs come like extremely heavy legs and it's, it's not just my mind like it goes on for extended periods of time i will slow down i will make choices like that uh but in general it's it gets to the end and we'll sort it out from there mm -hmm. and then once i'm in that position it's it's assessing it again what have what have i done wrong did i screw up my sleep did i not eat enough did i not drink enough you know did I try to run at three o'clock in the afternoon when I trained for six hours in the morning or whatever it is? And that's my mistake. And I'll try again the next day. But if it's like, okay, this is day six in a row, there's a trend here. I'm seeing that, you know, it's getting worse and worse each day. Then I'm going to make a decision that I need to pull back or I need to change my method. So it's, again, it is a lot of experimenting and it's a lot of having to be with it for a while to get an understanding of it and having to explore what running for four weeks when you should have had a break a week ago feels like to know the next time that you should pull back. But it's, you know, it's being sensible within that space in being sensible within the space of being stupid. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and in terms of like load preparation, you know, you say you're doing strength work for the legs, um, that sort of thing. What, yeah, what sort of work have you found to be necessary to, I don't know, like mitigate or minimize injury or injury risk? Yeah, so uh, this has been a, a huge, huge part of my training and even more so over the last eight months where I've also, uh, sorry, eight months, eight weeks where I've seen sort of a, one of the biggest increases in my performance and ability to recover has just been getting stronger in general. Uh, that's been the biggest thing that I've been looking for is just to overload, get stronger, get stronger, get stronger. I'm not a huge guy, but when it comes to ultra endurance, I'm pretty heavy, sitting at 80 kilos. Most guys are probably in the 60s, if not even a little bit lighter at about five foot five, I'm closer to six foot. So I do have a bit of weight to, to carry around, so I need to be strong enough to handle it. We need to remember that every stride and running is landing on a single leg with some huge forces. It's your body weight times up to like three or four or something like that. So uh, that's been a big one. And then now, and then looking at the types of contractions that I've been doing. So I guess coming from a traditional sort of gym bro into a powerlifter, it's basically concentric work just trying to overload, uh, but looking more and more into it and even thinking about how I program all my sprint athletes or speed athletes, we go through a triphasic model, uh, which is basically an eccentric phase, an isometric phase, and then a concentric phase. So I've been applying that to myself and the eccentric phase is really important for tendon strength and developing the tissues, developing the muscles, getting it bigger and getting it you know, generally stronger. And then we start looking at isometrics because majority of contractions within running are isometric. We need to be able to contract the muscle isometrically while the connective tissue uses its elastic properties. So if you try to run without having like proper isometric strength and you're constantly going to this eccentric loading, you're just putting a lot more stress on the muscle and a lot more stress on the joint. So instead, mm -hmm. we really want to utilize the elastic properties that the body has Running should be quite efficient. It should be low energy. But if you're having to rely on muscle contractions for every stride, you're wasting energy, overloading the tissue really quickly and, and going to discover some, uh, some problems. And then the, I guess the next main focus outside of that has been just really trying to strengthen from the ground up. So feet, ankles, calves, knees, and then worrying about the hips. I'm someone that has squatted over 220 kilos and deadlifted 300. My hip strength was not the problem even though I continued to try and hammer that, it was how can I then get that force to go into the ground without leaking out and causing a bunch of damage to my lower body, which I've had, you know, a left foot stress fracture, a right foot stress fracture, uh, a fibula uh, joint stress fracture. Previously, in this eight months, I've had nothing touch wood, <laughs> nearly there, but yeah. So I think isometrics, eccentrics, and strengthening uh, from the ground up has been the, the main priorities with the strength work. Mm. And what about the coordinative side technique, you know, the sort of gait patterning side, what sort of work have you done around there? Yeah, that, look, that's, you know, beyond obviously strength work and, and just putting in, in miles on the road, we want to become as efficient a runner as we possibly can. You know, the difference, a 5% difference over 24 hours is a lot of energy. Mm. So we want to try and maximize that. So, the biggest one has been uh, giving myself opportunity to develop rhythm and timing. So I've used a bunch of different methods for that, whether it's different patterning drills. And when I talk patterning drills, we're talking utilizing the lat and the hip and how that sort of slings together at the back, utilizing the core for its rotational capacity and being able to connect that all together. So that might be throwing drills, that might be step-up drills or 
or different variations that involve both. Uh, and then different coordinated tasks such as um, uh, the coordinations. I know you've played around with those a lot before. Still playing with locomotive tasks, getting down on all fours, getting down on the floor, giving my body a chance to move freely. Because if we look at what running is, it's, it's essentially why we're on two legs. It's, it's the thing we're designed to do is to be able to run. But again, you know, we, we create this story, not just in our minds, but within our bodies too, by the way that we've lived. And within that, we take away some of our innate, I guess, knowing or our innate uh, way that we're meant to be able to do things in a natural, instinctive way. So we need to give ourselves opportunities to restore that. And one of the biggest ways that that happens is just simply through play. It doesn't even need to be specific to running, although, you know, running will be an element in a lot of games. It's just allowing your body to tap into that primal instinctive movement to allow timing and rhythm and things like that to, to develop on their own. And then being, you know, somewhat conscious during the running at times and spending different periods of different runs focusing on that. Uh, but at this point now, it's pretty automatic, which is feeling nice. Mm. So it sounds like there's like this general trait sort of development, but then, you know, to anchor it all, you're still having the running and you're doing that like every day as well. And you were mentioning before how even with the way that you run, you modify that quite a bit to be almost like either a little bit slower or a little bit faster. Um, yeah. Have you experimented with like running in sort of different ways and different patterns as well to find what suits you best? Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, you know, I, I've, I've run, I ran a lot as a, as a teenager playing different sports and then I kind of completely stopped running. So I had to completely build my technique up from a powerlifter, which powerlifters are not designed to run. Everything we do is, is sort of opposed to that, I guess, in a lot of ways besides, you know, keep extension. Um, so because of that, it was fixing postural things. Uh, I guess the term posture sometimes gets, uh, thrown under the bus a little bit in its lack of importance, I guess, that posture is essential. Uh, it's just that our idea of posture is potentially uh, off. It's not about, you know, maintaining a, a quote-unquote perfect textbook posture. It's about maintaining the perfect posture for what you're trying to accomplish. So if you can figure out how to put your body in the right position, everything else will kind of work right. If my hip or my pelvis is tilted too far in one direction, my hip flexion or hip extension is going to be uh, altered. So learning how to position my posture during my runs has allowed everything else to become automatic. I don't really have to think about what I'm doing with my legs or what I'm doing with my arms. That will happen as the result of my position and my body's own general attributes, which is you know what we sort of mentioned before with those uh, developing the general coordination and rhythm. So yeah, it's it's you know, it's taken a study and an understanding of, of biomechanics, which luckily I, I had opportunities to study and, and can comprehend, learning from different resources and, and yeah, going by feel a lot. It, it, it changes. And also, uh, I guess another big point is learning how to alter my run within the run. Um, uh, you know, we only have so much capacity within certain joints. So I may start my run quite uh, very bouncy, very elastic off my Achilles uh, or my feet in general, my calves. But over time, they're going to fatigue. So then I have to have a backup running strategy, which might be a little bit more knee dominant where I'm flexing the knee just a little bit more. And then I'm going to have one which is a little bit more pelvic dominant where I'm going to be able to use my hip or my pelvis to throw the leg. 
So it's an understanding of what works best, an understanding of what works best when that one fails, and then having an understanding of what works best after that. I like this. It's like searching within the tool bag to be like, what else have I got? You know, I've got, have I got one more gate pattern? All right, this one, this one's going to be good. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So one thing that I found really interesting because um, I've been following your posts, especially about like athlete development and sprinting. And there was a post that you were talking about like cues and intention and communication and uh, like what we've been talking about now, you know how you're talking about this uh, this role of posture, also the theoretical understanding that you've had from biomechanics as well. But then it's a different ask, isn't it, when you then try to apply that within yourself, like actually, and then also when you help to guide others as well. So maybe, yeah, if you can talk about these two examples, like how you said, like how did you sort of find that position for yourself, you know, to bring yourself to awareness and then teach your body that? And then also how have you, uh, what, what sort of like ways have you found to communicate effectively to others to help teach them these sort of things? Hmm. So, yeah, there's a, there's a few parts to that. I think, I guess we'll start with, uh, with my own uh, personal way of, of understanding it within myself. We need to, it helps to, sorry, we don't need to, it helps to have a theoretical understanding of what you're trying to achieve. That is a good starting block because you then have an idea of where you're trying to get to. Very useful. Within that, we then need to create some sort of awareness. So if we're talking cueing, for example, that's internal cueing. That's understanding the body and we're cueing some part of the body to do something. What we then need to realize though is the more complex that the task is, the less useful that internal cueing is going to be because I can't consciously think of the multitude of moving parts within running. And specifically, if we're talking sprinting, sprinting is the highest velocity and one of the most complex movements we can, we can really try to put together if we look at how much of the body is involved in that. So you can't tell someone that they need to flex their right big toe. It's not going to work. So what we do is we find less complex movements and we break the movement down to as isolated a position as we can. And then from there, we can use the internal cueing and gain some sort of awareness of what that feels like and what that what that does for the rest of the body. If, if my posture is in a certain position, what does my right shoulder feel like if my sternum is up here? What does my hip feel like? From there, you gradually then move across the continuum into a more complex movement and you gradually need to start reducing that internal cueing of that internal feedback. So uh, before we move on from there, we need to make a clear distinction between uh, theoretically explaining or, or, or trying to demonstrate something and actually cueing. Cueing is essentially that last bit of information you put in just before executing the skill. Taking time before that or after that to understand theoretically is different. It's still internal, but it's not internal cueing. We're simply developing understanding. What we then need to do is be able to find a cue, which is going to be focusing on something more external or something more visual, such as an analogy, that is going to try and replicate the key elements of what we've been working on. So. If I've been doing like uh, gate patterning drills, you know, let's, for example, uh, like a modified step up that has an arm swing and a ball throw to initiate that sort of lat engagement, I can cue that internally because there's not much moving, it's just the arm. And, but then I need to take time to debrief after that 
get an understanding of what was happening. And from there, I'm going to then try and find the external cue that creates the same movement. So this is now as a coach looking at someone, okay, here's you doing the drill isolated. It looked just like this. Now, here's you doing the drill in, uh, I guess, a more complex movement, like going into a run. And I've used this external cue and you created it exactly the same. So that in that person's mind, which is going to be different for, you know, almost everyone, sure, lots of people fall into similar categories, but essentially it's going to be different. We need to at least think that it's going to be different for everyone. And you can see that it's now creating the same effect. That's the cue that we're going to go with. And then ultimately, we want to get to something as simple as an analogy. We want to get to something where we can break it down into take off like a jet plane. And that's all you need to say. And that's going to put all those external cues, which is going to be the collection of all those internal cues and self-awarenesses that we've created over time into that finished product. Now, we can skip that whole process. And sometimes you can tell someone, take off like a jet plane, and it all goes together. But that person generally has uh, a pretty... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Their, their body kind of can do what it, it's meant to do already. It has functioning hips. It has functioning shoulders, whatever it is. Things can fall into place because they've created a system. I find most people getting into things, especially if you start a skill a little bit late, we need to go through that awareness phase first. Mm. I really love that way you've broken it down. You know, It's like within the chaos, we need to turn down the chaos a little bit to restructure and reorganize. Uh, before then when going back into the chaotic environment then our tools need to adapt as well and i guess this is almost the art of coaching or communication recognizing where that person is within their context and then using the appropriate tool right uh, to to help to help bridge that gap to 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 allow this repatterning or whatever change that you want to occur within that person so yeah that i think that, that that's really interesting um mm. i i guess final sort of uh questions that i wanted to ask you about is um we talked about searching for these limits of ourselves and reaching for the potential that sort of thing i wanted to gather your thoughts on this uh orientation sometimes uh that i see where people are going okay i want to feel balanced i'm searching for balance within like my sort of system you know let's let's talk like yin and yang right very famous and so there's this pursuit of of balance almost this this concept um how, how do you see yourself sort of uh, w viewing those sort of pursuits or this concept of balance? Mm. So there's a, there's a few parts to this one as well. So I guess it, it's very useful to have an idea of where that balance point is. It's nice to know where our center point is because that's a great place to move from. We know that when we're balanced in movement, you have opportunities, you know, if you have a good balanced stance, you're going to be able to throw a good jab if you're a boxer or whatever it is. But we then need to have a second realization, which is the center point is always changing. So to rely on our knowledge of where our center point is, is probably going to get you in trouble because over time you're going to shift further and further away while still thinking you're balanced. And within that space of thinking you're balanced, you're not going to make appropriate changes to, to rediscover where you are. But I guess sort of, you know, going to where that question is leading, it's, it's what happens when you live off balance or what happens when you move away from that deliberately. 
and we start moving more into, I guess, the extremities of what we're capable of. And I think that that is such an important thing to do. We need to be able to move away from that balance point for a couple of reasons. One, to see how far we can go, to see what we are capable of and not limit ourselves to this, to this one balanced mindset. It's also then to learn how we go at coming back to that point. What do we have to do from these extremes to be able to return to a more balanced point? But then, you know, as important as it is for our overall well-being to, I guess, to have that center point, we need to give ourselves enough chance to move away from it to discover more parts about ourselves. Within that balance point, we're kind of going to get really familiar with who we are and where we are and what we're doing. But I think there's way too much left undiscovered in that zone. We need to give ourselves the opportunity to tip and not just go to the most extreme point about balance. We need to go completely off balance to the point where we fall straight on our face. Uh, I don't know anyone that's ever done a handstand practice for any sort of time that hasn't fallen at least once because you're constantly exploring where, how far can I take it? How far can I take this forward lean on this, on this press to handstand? How you know, deep can I go into this handstand push-up? We're willing to do it in those little elements, but we're not necessarily willing to do it with our life. We're not willing to take that risk. And sure, there might be some negative consequences and that's definitely worth acknowledging and you need to be aware and ready for that. But within that same space, you give yourself a chance to tap into parts of yourself you, like we talked about before, don't get to communicate with often because we have a natural you know, instinct to not do that. Uh, it's a protective mechanism. Let's not go to the danger point. Makes a lot of sense. And I agree with that in a lot of ways, but we need to tinker with it because that's going to give us a greater relationship with a different part of ourselves that, yeah, like we didn't even know existed. Mm, great stuff. And, you know, with this run, maybe uh, do you want to take us through when it's all happening? And um, my other thing would be what, after you do the run, you know, have you thought past that? Is it going to be 48 hours? Is it going to be nonstop Forrest Gump style? What's going through your mind? <laughs> yeah, so the run itself is happening on November 6th. Uh, so we're three weeks out from tomorrow when we're recording this. Um, it's going to be heading up the, the east coast of Australia uh, from La Perouse up to well, the east coast of, of Sydney. Sorry, uh, it's not that big. Uh, from La Perouse up to Manly. And yeah, I, I guess I've been, at least for the last two or three months, the idea has been that this is it. I'm done with long distance running after this. But I also said that before the 50K and I also said that before the 100K. Uh, my big, my, I guess my big priority is to find the, the love of running again, which I, I know, almost annoyingly enough has started to happen over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I'm starting to get worried that I am going to want to keep doing this for a little bit longer. But as far as like specific plans, I don't have any besides uh, tapering back, giving myself some time off, having an event and just giving myself the opportunity to reclaim that love for running and also start to devote some energy into other parts of my life. As much as I do love training a lot, uh, probably need to work on, on some other elements of, of things that I'm going to do. I'm going to have a wedding coming up. I'm going to be uh, trying to progress business a little bit. But I, I yeah, I, I don't have a, a clear answer because I haven't found one. And 
uh, I started to get a little bit angsty about that, knowing that, you know, this is all consuming right now. I go to bed thinking about it. I wake up instantly thinking about it. I run one to two times a day. I journal about running. Everything seems to be about running at the moment. So I am already thinking about how empty everything is going to feel after this. And that's, I guess, one of the consequences of putting yourself fully into something. You have to deal with that. But yeah, I'm sure I'll find something and it'll be another challenge and there'll be some other way to keep exploring this stuff because every time I do it, I come out a completely different person and that's really fun because then I get to discover what that guy's like and, and what he's capable of. So yeah, we'll we'll keep running a little bit and we'll, we'll we'll find something else to do after that. And do you want to explain a little bit about the fundraising portion of the race? Yeah, thanks. This is, uh, this is I guess, a, a really big, important thing for me, and it truly uh, uh, means a lot to me. So I am fundraising for Beyond Blue for this run. Uh, mental health is something, you know, I think we all suffer some challenge there throughout our lives. You know, not everyone has a specific mental illness or, or specific challenge, but we all have our anxieties. We all have our fears. We all have our stresses and our, our days of uncertainty and it's something that even to this day with as open as people are becoming is stigmatized against and it's not openly talked about, especially in the male community, our ability to express emotions and go through those things are so challenged. So uh, a service like Beyond Blue, they work really hard to help educate and help support those who are in need. And mental health is one of the most underfunded health sectors in the country, despite the constant rising uh, cases. And if we look at everything that's happened with COVID, with suicide rates going up, depression rates going up, all these different things happening, I think it is my duty to do as much as I possibly can through the platform that I am creating in this run. And uh, I truly just hope that it starts a conversation for anyone that sees it. Okay, it's like, oh, that's awesome. That's a run. Cool. I don't want you to talk about the run. I want you to talk about what I'm running for. Because sure, I'm running for myself, but within that, I'm running for an understanding and a shared experience of, of how we can go through and develop and improve our mental health as a collective in this country and around the world, and in men and women and everyone involved. So yeah, um, I am obviously asking for donations and if, if anyone is in a uh, position to do so, it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, you can do that through my Instagram page. There's a link in my bio there. but. At the very least, I just hope that if you're hearing this right now, you you are willing to, to look for an opportunity to get involved in the conversation, whether it's with yourself, someone around you, or or in a wider platform. Because it's 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 one of these issues that, sure, Beyond Blue is going to do great work and they're going to help people, but until we start working together as a community, it's, it's never going to get better because you know it requires people to reach out to use these services like Beyond Blue, but we're all here for each other all the time. Um, we all have a chance to do that. So that's why I, I'm, I'm just trying to really create uh, something there with whatever I can. And I'm putting my heart and soul into it. And that's what Meritai stands for. So. Mm, very nice. Very nice. And I'll enjoy, um, I will include those links for more information if people are after that in the show notes. Um, otherwise, yeah, I guess on your profile page as well, I see you've, you've got the link there so people can jump onto that as well, which will also be in the show notes. But once again, I do want to thank you very much for sharing your insights. Always very interesting with everything that you're going around. Um, and 
from the training side and then also just from the being side as well. I've gained a lot out from this chat once again. So thank you very much, Daniel. No, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And that was Daniel Lucini from Merakai Performance. Thanks to Daniel for joining in once again and having that chat. Always a pleasure connecting with him. He's such a beautiful human, and I think he's got so many great things to share. With his race, which by the time this podcast is going to be uploaded, I think it will be about a week before he runs. Please, if you feel like you'd love to contribute to the cause that he is providing support for, which is within Mental Health, Beyond Blue, the organization through there, you can donate and pledge some money with links that I'll include in the show notes. So I think it's a really, really nice cause. You know, during this period of lockdown, at least here in Australia, it's been really, really tough for a lot of people. And so I think bringing awareness and raising resources for these types of organizations is really, really generous. So I wish Daniel all the energy in the world to get him through this event because he's going to need it. It's It still blows my mind that one can push themselves to this limit but as you have already listened through there has been a lot of insights gleaned from this type of practice thank you to you guys for tuning in once again i always appreciate it remember if you have any feedback or want to get in touch you can find me on instagram at phaonp that's at p-h-a-o-n-p or you can go on the website, thepassivehang.com, and my details are there. You can send me an email through the form on the website. So appreciate it, guys. Once again, I got a lot more episodes. I can't wait to share them with you, and I'll see you in the next one.